Hello and welcome to The Interview, a podcast that presents conversations with top figures in media and politics. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite, and this week my guest is Tiffany Cross. She's a political analyst and author of the book Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. In 2020, she served as a resident fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School. Now, she's the host of a new MSNBC show, The Cross Connection, which premieres this Saturday at 10 a.m. I called up Tiffany Cross this week to discuss the current political climate, the media landscape, and recent changes to the leadership of MSNBC. We also spoke about her new show and how it's going to tackle some of the biggest issues facing America. A president refusing to concede the election, a pandemic killing more than 2,000 Americans a day, and a racial justice movement sparked by the killing of Black Americans at the hands of police. Tiffany Cross is the host of a new MSNBC show, The Cross Connection, which premieres this Saturday at 10 a.m. She is also the author of 2020 book, Say It Louder, Black Voters, White Narratives, and Saving Our Democracy. Tiffany, thank you for joining us. I'm so excited to chat with you. Thank you for having me. Sure. So first off, congratulations on the new show. That's really exciting. Uh, and again, it airs on Saturday at 10 a.m. Uh, and it's a two-hour program. Could you start by telling us a little bit about what we can expect from the Cross Connection? Sure. So I uh, wanted to really touch on a lot of points that I made in my book about news media, and I wanted to center diverse voices who are increasingly taking up a dominant space in the new American electorate and discuss political issues with the rising majority of the country at the center. But also, I want to make it fun. You know, a lot of um, cable news programming is geared towards older viewers. And so I really want to tap into my generation and the generations behind me. Um, to discuss news in a way that's more culturally relevant. Something you touched on there is a lot of what you see on broadcast news, a little bit less on cable, but it's still a real presence, is the sort of straight-laced news reporting where, you know, a newsman says what's going on. They'll give the sort of both sides account of a story and they'll present it like that. From what I understand, you you have a different approach to it. Um, is that something you've always had? Is that a what kind of idea is that for for a news show? Do you is that something you think is is missing in the current uh, market? Well, I, I think when you say both sides, you know, I actually don't think there's always both sides to everything, and it's incredibly yep. frustrating to watch people present, you know, one logical idea that you may disagree with, and then present a completely asinine idea that's completely illogical, and present those things as though they're equal. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think that has been one of the biggest failures of mainstream media uh, the past four years during this administration and even covering the um, campaign in, in 2016. So, you know, I mean, this is a show with at minimum common sense. You know, we, we certainly won't do that. Um, and I think the audience that I'm trying to attract has a low tolerance for that kind of thing um, and a very keen BS detector. And so, uh, you know, I think there are ways to have a healthy exchange of ideas and ideology without breathing life into ridiculous conspiracy theories or, you know, trying to present racist people as people who speak with racial undertones. And like, you will never hear me say on the show, someone said something with racial overtones, because I don't know people who speak like that who don't hold racist views. So, you know, on this show, we'll always call a thing a thing, but certainly, um, you know, I, I, I'm humble enough to have people on who may disagree with me or have a different approach to something. And I think that not only makes for better TV, but for a better country. You know, that reminds me of an interview that you did that uh, went viral and, and is quite notable. Uh, it was in July and you were speaking to Bruce Lavelle, 
who is an advisor to President Donald Trump. Uh, and he was defending the president on all sorts of things on his, uh, you know, record helping the black community on the coronavirus. Uh, and it, the, the interview got particularly contentious when he, I think, referred to the coronavirus as the China virus. Yes. Is, is uh, do, first of all, do, do you plan on the cross connection to, to interview conservatives, Trump supporters? Is that going to be a big part of the show? And also, how do you prepare for a, what, what I think you would go into knowing is a contentious interview like that? Sure. So let me first say that um, conservatives are more than welcome to come on my show. I would love to sit across from uh, Republican leaders and have an intellectual discussion. I think Bruce Lavelle fell quite a bit short of that. Um, and I prepare the same way. I mean, I really, you know, I prepare the same way for these interviews. I um, am trying, you know, I've been a producer, an executive producer, a field producer. So I'm very familiar with how to pre prep talent. And so I split myself in two and the producer, Tiffany, starts to prep the talent, Tiffany D. Cross for these interviews. And I try to anticipate every scenario that could um, play out. I try to anticipate every answer this person may give. I try to fact check in real time. Um, but I also even prepare for things like the prompter to go out or, you know, my earpiece to go out or we lose a satellite. I'm like, you know, bracing myself for anything that that can happen. Um, and my hope is always that these interviews don't have to be contentious. You know, I, I, I don't think it makes for good journalism to sit there and be the sounding board for racist remarks. So mm -hmm. when Mr. Lavelle referred to COVID-19 as the China virus, I mean, it was clear that's not even something he believed. He was just being uh, regurgitating ugly things that he'd heard the president and, and his ilk say. Um, and, you know, I, I thought it was a really unfortunate um, interview because... It, I, I'm not sure that he presented anything that was intellectual, you know, like he, this was your chance to defend any part of the president's policy. Um, and, and I just think he was ill-equipped to do that. So yeah. um, it was unfortunate, but, but I, I definitely try to prep um, very strenuously for interviews, whether they be with conservatives or even or progressives. He cited the performance of the economy, I think Black unemployment, and the First yes. Step Act as being things that, that uh, well, President Donald Trump has done. Act, he called the First Step Act, Step One Act. He repeatedly he kept oh, saying boy. that. <laughs> <laughs> One wonders when Step Two is. Uh, but just right. to, 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 before we get to that, what are your? I just kind of want to know what your thoughts are broadly on Trump's record for people of color in this country. And when someone like Bruce Lavelle touts Trump's record for people of color. What's your response to that? My response is don't spit in my face and tell me it's raining. You know, I mean, I think what African-Americans in this country have survived and endured, uh, we really should be the first point of contact when it comes to issues of white supremacy because it's something with which we are overly familiar. And so I think Donald Trump um, did a lot of performative talk uh, about race relations, but this is something that he's completely ill-equipped to address. He has been not only um, the beneficiary of centuries of white supremacy, but he's also been a proponent who has perpetuated white supremacy his entire life, not just his political life, but even in his business space um, back when he was keeping black people out of his building. So I think it was pretty transparent to um, people who are the descendants of enslaved people um, to recognize some of the ridiculous things that he was trying to present as equality. And here we are in the final stages of um, this, this presidency. He's now, you know, out, the outgoing president. 
And what happened to all the talk around criminal justice now? He's trying to jam through um, executions at the federal level, which is pretty unprecedented and unheard of. Um, there was just an execution last night. He has been radio silent on it. Um, he's been radio silent on the disparities around COVID-19. Anytime he spoke about uh, equality, it was typically around criminal justice, as though that was the only thing African Americans, um, you know, could benefit from hearing. So, um, and you know, a lot of his uh, economic claims were, I mean, visibly, demonstrably false. Unfortunately, there were not a lot of people in the media who were willing to fact check that, um, and so it became something that was repeated so many times that people took it as truth. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a, I, I didn't take any of his rhetoric seriously, and I paid more attention to the policies that were actually pretty damaging to communities of color all over the country. It's always funny when you hear people tout the First Step Act as this big policy that Trump was singularly responsible for, when, if I'm not mistaken, it was Doug Collins and Hakeem Jeffries that right. put together the First Step Act. And, you know, exactly. it's, a, it's legislation in the House. Trump had the big signing unit ceremony, which I guess you can credit him for that. Um, but it's not his, you know, it's not a Trump policy. Uh, what kind of president do you think Joe Biden is going to be on issues for uh, the black community, for people of color in this country? Are you, are you optimistic about the next four years? Um, am I optimistic? I, look, I'll say this about the Biden-Harris administration. I, I think that with the same scrutiny that we have looked at the last administration, we will need to carry that into this administration. There's some level um, of relief, I think, which I completely understand. And I think there's the belief that it's about to be a four-year love fest with this administration. And one of the things I want to make sure that I do on my show is hold this administration accountable, particularly to the people um, who help elect them. And so um, that is, is, is not enough just to put, you know, faces of color in your administration. It's not enough uh, just to show up at the NAACP breakfast and, and do things, you know, like we are looking at um, some yet still unaddressed disparities that happen in this country um, that need to be discussed. And I think, you know, the most recent example of that with this leaked audio with his meeting with civil rights leaders, um, mm. it shows that there's still very much a gap between this 78-year-old white man who has experienced a very different America than um, many of the people uh, on, on, who he'll be governing, you know? And so I, I very much expect that there will still be um, very specific and strong demands of this administration, as there should be. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they, the president serves at the pleasure of the people, and we are the people. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely am not a mouthpiece for the party. So every Saturday from, from, from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, it will be very frank discussion um, and exchange about it. And I, I hope that the Biden administration will be bold enough to come on. You know, there's this old elitist attitude that, oh, well, we do the Sunday shows, you know, <laughs> and it's like, listen, the new, the American electorate looks different now. So you want to go talk about trust in the vaccine and you want to do that with, um, you know, somebody who, who, like people of color are not necessarily watching these shows every Sunday. You know, um, yeah. they're not a part of this Beltway crowd that tunes in to the typical Sunday talk shows. So I, I think if you want to reach communities of color, I want to create a space where, where they can do that. And I certainly hope they take advantage and leave behind the elitist attitude that we're only doing certain 
elitist, you know, Sunday shows that the Beltway deems appropriate. Yeah. Speaking of the sort of stodgy old media industry, it has changed a lot in recent years. And in, in your book, Say It Louder, you examine how the white media has existed as this driving force for institutional racism throughout American history. And that was sort of making an argument that the media should reflect uh, the diversity of the country that it serves. Now, the industry has changed a lot recently, thanks to cataclysms like the Me Too movement and high profile instances of racism that sparked efforts to improve diversity in newsrooms. Are you optimistic about those changes to the media industry specifically? I'm very optimistic about uh, the changes in the media industry, particularly at MSNBC. Uh, One, you have Cesar Conde, the chair of NBC Universal News Mm -hmm. Group, who is committed to creating a newsroom that looks like America. So he wants, you know, diversity everywhere. He wants faces of color um, on and off the screen. And so, you know, again, people pay lip service to these things, but he's actually executing that. And I think my show is a great example of that. And also, obviously, with the recent announcement of Rashida Jones as president of uh, MSNBC, the first black woman to run a major news network. So I think it was just the beginning. Certainly, we need more Asian American Pacific Islander representation. Same with, um, you know, the Latino Hispanic community and Native American representation. So I'm excited to see what happens. And I hope all the communities keep pushing for that kind of change because we need it. You you mentioned Rashida Jones. She uh, was MSNBC, NBC News executive, and was just named president of MSNBC, which is a, a huge deal. Uh, do you have much of a, a, a relationship with her? What can you tell us about Rashida Jones? So I'll tell you the first time that we sat down to talk about um, this show, uh, I didn't have the job. I was still, you know, in the audition process. And it was at 30 Rock, which was not very populated at the time, obviously, because of COVID. Mm. And I didn't know she was in the building. And someone said she was. So I texted her and said, hey, I want to stop by. And she happened to be literally in her corner office um, wearing a Beyonce on the run tour (laughs) (laughs) T-shirt. And she went to Hampton and HBCU. I went to Clark. Um, There was evidence of her full lived experience all around her office. So Mm -hmm. even though we did not know each other well, I knew her and she knew me. She understood Mm -hmm. me. She got me. She understood my lived experience. And I have never in all of my uh, years in journalism sat across from someone that was my age, had my experience, and I didn't have to mute who I was, shrink who I was. I could just be me and have that person get it. So yeah. it was a very, uh, I think, an amazing, um, amazing, an amazing turning point in my career. Now, before you were at MSNBC, you worked at CNN. Uh, what do you think of the cable news landscape as it exists today? Do you, do you like cable news? Do you like the industry? Well, I like my show. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope other people like my show. I mean, mm-hmm. look, I, I think so. This is what what I'll say. I think it's really interesting, and, and we'll we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. But you know, there are still some networks out there who are you know treating race as a vertical. You know, it's like oh, well, we'll have a race beat. Sure. And I think one of the great things that catapults MSNBC light years ahead of the um, competition is they understand that communities of color are not the side dish. You know, we are very much the steak and not the potato. And so I think, you know, it's one of those things. If you build it, they will come. And I think MSNBC is building it. 
So, um, yeah, I, I think we have to be woven into the main part of the conversation. And quite frankly, I haven't seen any other network do that successfully or even make a serious attempt. It's one thing to cover, you know, protests in the street and, you know, thrive on if they're violent, you know, um, yeah. great. But what if we treated systemic racism like breaking news? You know, what if we address things from a perspective of the rising majority of the country? And I think that's what's happening at MSNBC. And that's certainly what I plan to be doing. You know, it's interesting because I feel like media, I, I read somewhere recently that this idea that the support for social justice movements and the fight against racism has had a tendency to be seasonal. Every few years, there's a high profile incident of racism, like the killing of an unarmed, unarmed black man at the hands of police that makes national headlines. And there's an outcry and the country's forced to reckon with racism. And then it sort of fades from the consciousness of white America, at least. And everyone, except for people of color, are forced or are, are sort of move on. This year, with the there was an international response to the killing of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and others. It, it felt different. Do you see a more permanent change in how this country approaches racism after the upheaval earlier this year? I do, but I'll, I'll add a caveat. You know, I think mm -hmm. Black people have always had to die in spectacular fashion to pierce the white narrative of what happens to us. And so it sounds, you know, really great to, you know, go to a Black Lives Matter um, march or protest and to put the Black Lives Matter sign in your window um, and to rock the T-shirt. But I think when you drill deep into that and start to ask people, well, this is what this policy looks like. And, you know, this is what defund the police means. And then you start to see some uh, divide there, you know, then all of a sudden when it's not so performative, but it's actual policy behind it, then how many people are really down in this struggle? You know, mm -hmm. even now this conversation around, oh, defund the police, you know, cost house seats. Like I just haven't seen any evidence of that. Um, there was a congresswoman on air earlier who was saying, I support Black Lives Matter, but I went to Blue Lives Matter <laughs> events as well. And it's like, yeah, but you're not really my ally. You know, last I checked, blue wasn't a skin color. It was a job, you know. So it's like, I don't think there's still a deep level of understanding. But, you know, again, I mean, I, I, those are the conversations that I want to have. And I think these conversations can be uncomfortable for some people. But the more we talk about them, the less uncomfortable they'll be, the more informed people will be. Because nobody likes to be told, like, yeah, you're, you benefit from white supremacy. You benefit from my oppression. But when mm -hmm. we have the conversation to explain it and, you know, put a mirror up and disrupt the false narrative about this country... Um, then I think there's a lot more understanding among us as we try to navigate this space together. And I just think the f the fact that that polls showing support for the Black Lives Matter movement and that increasing drastically since 2015 is evidence that the more it's spoken about, particularly by media, the more people come to agree with it and support it. Um, are there people on cable news that you admire in in how they uh, tackle these issues? People that people that are doing it well right now. Well, obviously Joy Reid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling really you'd say that. Uh, <laughs> I really do. I think the way that the the path and the space that she created and um, seeing her in prime time obviously warms my heart and it, it means mm. so much. Um, I also have to shout out Abby Phillip, you know, at CNN. I think she does yeah. such a good job of reporting um and just her poise and diction even and how she holds court on set there um i think is very impressive yamish alcindor over at pbs i think she's um another great talent i'm excited to see 
what she does. Um, so yeah, and I, you know, I think journalism has its uh, a very unique lane. Um, I would even shout out, you know, John Berman. I, I think he does a great job. I think the lane Maddow, Rachel Maddow, has been able mm-hmm. to um, take up has been very informative. I mean, it's hard just to sit at a screen and watch somebody talk for 15 or 20 minutes. But with her, you don't want to look away. You're so enthralled in what she's saying. And she has a way of drawing you into the story. And you're just, you know, hanging on her every word. So I, I definitely think that um, that she gets it right. So certainly there are people in uh, cable news who I think are, are doing great things. But that's not to say that I don't think, you know, there can be more people. You know, I, I, My hope would be that every, you know, 24 hour cable news network was making a point to have very honest, unfiltered um, conversation. And, and I think that you would see the viewership change drastically. Yeah. I'm going to catch you off guard here. Do you watch Fox News? I don't. But I'll tell you, I used to appear on Fox News. Did you? Um, I did. I was unaware. Yeah. I, um, oh. I used to appear on Fox News. I stopped appearing on Fox News because it was always some trickery. They would say, mm. hey, we want you to come on and talk about midterms. And yeah. I'm sitting there, our mics were on set, and the host would start reading a whole intro about North Korea. Mm. And oh, wow. the whole thing would, you know, change topics <laughs> at the last minute, but it was fine. I mean, obviously, I'm, you know, cultured, well-read person. So it's like, okay, you guys want to talk about North Korea? Let's do this. I'm Let's still do it, yeah. That informed than this other Trump acolyte over here. So let's have the conversation. So it never worked, but I just felt like that trickery was beneath me and I wasn't reaching people who had any level of intellectual curiosity um, about hearing another side because every Mm -hmm. time I would get flooded with the most, you know, ridiculous, hateful, racist, xenophobic um, messages. And I'm like, you know, this isn't really a good use of my time. So I stopped doing it. Yeah, that doesn't seem like it's particularly a, a useful thing to do. Um, do. Do you think that there that that Fox News is going to? I mean, it's it's been such a powerful news network in the last four years. In I mean, in large part because it's what it's what the president of the United States watches and takes like foreign policy advice from. Do Do you think it's it's yeah, it is a little scary. Do you, Do you think that's gonna it's going to continue having a similar power in the Biden administration, or is it? going to become another cable news network again? It, it may become another cable news network. I think the interesting thing is um, Fox, the Fox, the very loyal Fox News viewer um, is more loyal to this president. And so you're seeing um, other networks pop up and these digital communities and digital spaces pop up. And so I think some of the, um, you know, this cult-like following in, in the MAGA world may abandon the network for, you know, uh, other more insular um, and even more extreme outlets, if you can imagine, which is, you know, just as scary, if you ask me. You're launching your show at quite an insane time in America. We have a president who has lost uh, re-election, but he's doing everything in his power to steal the election from his opponent who won. There's also a deadly pandemic, which is only getting worse. What do you think the next few months are going to look like? And what, what are the big stories that you want to be covering on your show? So I have to tell you, I'm terrified about the next few months. I think mm-hmm. we have to take Donald Trump very seriously. Um, this is not just rhetoric. These are, mm-hmm. you know, elected officials trying to stage a coup, um, which is terrifying. We are still in the grips of a global pandemic. The food lines are getting longer and longer. And I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I mean, I I struggled in life. And so I truly understand what it's like to not know how you're going to pay your mortgage, how you're going to make rent, how you're going to feed your kids, 
you know, then everybody around you to be struggling. And, you know, my, my heart breaks. And I know what it's like to, to experience that and watch television while people have these very inside baseball conversations and talk about the latest drama on the Hill. And you're just thinking, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to eat tomorrow. Mm. Um, and it's, it's hard to feel good about any of this. You know, what a great opportunity to have my own show and, you know, be in this space. But it's really hard to celebrate any of it as my countrymen, my family, um, everyone around me has been touched by this pandemic in some way. It's had an adverse effect on, on every part of my life and I, I know on so many other people's life. And just to wake up every day and face the fact that thousands of people died that day, um, I, I want to be very sensitive to these conversations. Um, and also, I want the viewer to know I understand you because I am you. And mm -hmm. I, I want to be sensitive to how we frame these discussions um, and, and always be a voice for the people. Uh, and I, I hope I'm, I'm able to do that. And, and I hope that people can receive that because um, I'm really just it's, it's a heartbreaking time. A tricky thing that I think a lot of news networks and shows are going to have to reckon with is the fact that by January, it's, you know, provided nothing crazy happens, Trump is going to be a civilian. Right. Do you think that he's going to be a story that you're going to be covering for years? Or do you think you're going to be able to sort of avoid covering him? Because I mean, he, the, I think media has always fallen into the trap of an obsessive focus with Trump, because he just is crazier than everything else happening. So he sucks in all the all the attention. But once he's out of office, there's going to be a little bit more flexibility to really turn away. Is he, do you think you're going to have to be covering him for the next couple of years? Or do you think you'll be able to focus on other issues? Well, I think that there will be some in the media who will continue to cover him. I won't do that um, on my show. Mm -hmm. I think there is some level of Trump fatigue and, you know, having to report on everything he does or every ridiculous yeah. thing he tweets. I have no interest in doing that. However, you raise a good point when you say he's a civilian, which means that he is subject to certain laws, just like everyone else, from which he cannot be pardoned. So obviously there will be a story with Tish James, the New York Attorney General, and, and what happens there. I think that is of interest to the people and, and serves you know the viewer well um, to hear what, what happens with that. I think there will be some interest with his children. Um, you know, Ivanka and Jared made over $130 million their second year at the White House. Certainly people deserve to know what that was all about. So I don't know that I'll always, um, you know, take a deep dive into these issues, but when it's relevant uh, and there's actually something to report, then certainly we'll, we'll talk about it. But, you know, we, we have to be forward looking as well. And, you know, what what's happening that has a direct impact on people's lives, I think will always take precedence on, on my show. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and look out for our coverage of my conversation with Tiffany Cross on Mediate.com. We'll see you next week.